So we are in the book of Job, and we've been here now for a number of weeks. I'm hoping that maybe it's becoming evident to people why I just felt compelled to preach from this particular book. Uh, I know it's not the one that a lot of people would have chosen if we're just looking at, you know, trying to figure out what book to study in the Old Testament, why we would come to the book of Job. But I think as we're going through here, it's going to become more and more obvious to us why this understanding, some basic understanding of this book is absolutely essential to uh, our, each one of us uh, uh, as our, part of our walk as Christians. But thus far, we've studied that, uh, you know, we, there was this guy named Job, and he was just this abs, uh, upstanding guy that just stood above, hands above just about everyone else, and he had a great love and passion for God. Uh, God had blessed him with a lot of wealth, and at the same time, a big family, a large family that truly uh, loved one another. And as Satan had appeared in, in, in the heavenly courts the first time and, you know, brought God's attention to, uh, to Job and, and asked permission to, uh, to bring trouble to Job. And God granted that with the exception that he could not touch Job's body. Uh, and so Satan, in, in just one day, took away all of Job's wealth, all of his, his, his worldly possessions, and everyone in his family, with the exception of his wife, all in one day, probably the most tragic day that any person has ever endured on the faith of the earth. And how did Job end that day? He did it by bowing down and worshiping God, not understanding everything that had taken place just a measure of the greatness of his heart for God that he was able to do that even in the midst of the greatest grief maybe that just about anybody's ever known in all of time. And we know that uh, Satan was not satisfied with that and that he appeared in uh, the heavenly court a second time and he, uh, and he charged God with the idea that uh, you know the only reason that Job is is continuing to be a worshiper of of you is that uh, you haven't let me uh, afflict him directly if you would just let me strike his body then he certainly will curse you and so God gave him permission to do that and as we studied last week uh, Satan afflicted him with sores uh, that covered his whole body boils we were assuming uh, infectious sores uh, and his wife's advice to him at that point was what you need my husband is to what you need to do my husband is just curse God and die she saw no hope she didn't have any idea or belief that her husband would ever uh, recover from the illness that he had been afflicted with and, uh, and I think it's just a measure. I don't, you know, some people might read that and say she must not have really cared that much about him. I think she cared so much about him. It was just, just impossible for her to watch him to, to be in the kind of uh, discomfort and pain that he was, was in. And she wanted it to end. And that was the only, only thing that she saw that would bring an end to that great suffering that her husband was enduring. But we're going to pick up this morning, and we're just going to be looking at three or four verses, if you can imagine that. Uh, actually, three verses. Now, when Job's three friends, this is chapter 2, verse 11, 
heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar uh, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word with him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, if you read ahead in the book, uh, what you would find is this. In, in, in chapter 7, verse 3, it actually implies that Job has been un, in this condition he's in now for many months. Not just for a few days. Not for just for a few weeks. But probably what would appear to be numerous months. So he has lingered now for all of that time in this excruciating pain. You wonder how it is that uh, these three friends of Job found out about all of the stuff that had befallen their dear friend Job. We don't know how they got to know one another. We don't know how often they saw one another. We do know that they all lived in, the, the three men lived in three different places. Uh, some of which were a significant distance away from Job's homeland. Uh, again, we don't know the details of how they got to know each other and how they got to be so close to one another. But these were three men that, uh, that were, were upstanding men in their own rights in the places that they were from. They were wise men, considered to be wise men. They were educated men, which uh, becomes very apparent once we start talking about their responses to some of the things that Job says to them. We wonder how it is that they found out about these things have been going on with their dear friend. Obviously, no newspapers, no telephones. In those days, news spread by word of mouth. So it's one person hearing about it and passing it on to the next person. So we don't have any idea exactly how long it took, but, there's, but it obviously probably took several months for the news of Job's tribulations to reach each one of those three friends and, and they all had the same response. And that is they needed to go to be with their friend, to help their friend, to get through this difficult time. Have you noticed how bad news spreads very rapidly? And really bad news spreads even more rapidly? Just words of mouth. People saying to one another, have you heard this amazing thing that has happened to righteous Job? You won't believe it when I tell you. Not only that, very often people have this knack of embellishing things as they get passed along. And very often, the end message is not what it started out to be from the very beginning. But, but evidently, the message that these guys got was pretty accurately. So I think God's hand was in, in all of this that, that uh, you know, when they got the word, that they got a pretty accurate description of what had taken place in the life 
of their friends. People expect things to happen to bad people. It does, however, surprise us when bad things happen to people that we consider to be good people. I would imagine that these three friends, when they heard it, they were saying, this, 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 this can't be a reality. That nothing like this has ever happened to any person that I know of. Perhaps they thought that maybe the news had been embellished somewhat and things were not quite as bad as the picture that had been painted for them looked like. They may have even thought something like, this simply cannot be true. So what do they do? The only way to know for certain exactly what had happened was for each one of them to go and see for themselves. And so they do that. And just remember, in those days, traveling, I mean, we don't know exactly how far these guys came, uh, but we know that in those days, it was a significant distance. And the travel in those days was difficult when you're going long distances. We need to understand something, and that is that God was orchestrating this whole thing, and not only the things that have happened to Job, but he's orchestrating this whole coming together of these three friends to come to him. They're responding to God's calling. So I just want to remind us of something, because we're going to be talking a lot about the conversation that takes place between Job and these three guys uh, for a good bit of the next few weeks as we get more deeply into the book of Job. But I want to remind us of something that's very important, very critical to our understanding of all of this. And that is it wasn't just Job and four close friends. There was someone else there in the middle of all of this who really was a central figure in all of it. And that is the Lord. He was there. He was orchestrating all of this. So please don't take him out of the picture. Do you have any friends like this? People that you know that if they found out something like this had happened to you would be here in a heartbeat. Just because they know you, because they love you, and they also know that if it happened to them, that you would be there in their time of need. I hope all of you have those kinds of relationships. Because we need to have those kinds of relationships. It's very important to every one of us. Who knows how long it's been since they've seen Job. They lived at great distance from one another, so I don't imagine they got together that often. We have no idea how long. But one of the things that stands out here is this, is, is they're gro- as they come together as a group, and it's like they met, first of all, as a group together, and 
God had to orchestrate that. And they come to him as these three friends, close friends, close not only to Job, but close to one another. But the closer they draw to him as they see him in the distance, the worse his condition appears. I would imagine that he was grotesque. That he looked so terrible that they could hardly bear to look upon him. I would imagine that they were wondering if this in fact could possibly be my dear friend Job. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe this is someone else. This does not even look anything like him. They stop at some distance from him, but we know that they got pretty close to him because they're able to carry on a conversation with him. So they didn't stop a quarter of a mile away. They didn't stop a hundred yards away. They didn't come right up to him and touch him, apparently. But they came close enough that they could talk with him. That they could have a conversation, a lengthy conversation with him. I guess maybe the best way of describing Job's condition, at least his physical condition, is his flesh is essentially rotting. He's in excruciating pain, pain for which there is no lessening. Chronic, constant, unrelenting. All through which he still has not cursed God. Have you ever smelled rotting flesh? We've all smelled roadkill, right? I mean, have we even thought about this? It could be that Job smelled so badly here. that it would be difficult to even come very close to him. Sometimes I don't think, you know, you'll hear people say things like they think that the ancient people were just stupid. They didn't know very much. They were not very knowledgeable about hardly anything. They were superstitious about this, that, and the other, and and whatever. But let me tell you, they, they were engineers, weren't they? They built some things that, that we marvel at even today. How in the world they managed to do the things that they did. But they knew some things. And I would imagine, one thing that they knew is there were certain diseases that were infectious. You know, when people had certain things, you didn't want to go close to them because very often those things got passed from one person to another person. Maybe this is one of the reasons why they came close to him, but they didn't come up and they did not lay their hands on him. We find ourselves in the middle of this COVID pandemic. 
who are the heroes of this because there are heroes and let me tell you there are a lot of them those people who are willing to put themselves in harm's way for the betterment of other folks what we're talking about are the health care professionals doctors and nurses I don't know that many of them, but I would imagine that there's a large percentage of them that are God-fearing people. Some of you are nurses or have been nurses in former times. These people are not fearless. I don't imagine any of them have no fear at all of contracting this disease by being exposed to other people. But they, unlike many other people, do not let their fears dictate to them what they will or will not do. They serve people in this capacity regardless of their own exposure. I have a brother-in-law that works in an oncology lab. He, he has to do with treating cancer patients with radiation. He actually is the one who develops their radiation treatment schedule and dosage and things like that. I was asking him a couple of years ago, I said, Bill, do you, do you <laughs> Do you think that we're really curing people from cancer much these days? Because I had talked to someone who did the same thing years ago, and he said, you know, I'm not too sure we're making much of a difference at all. People are still dying from cancer even after we treat them. He said, well, that's true, Keith, to some degree. He said, but every now and then, he said, we'll have someone that comes, and their prognosis is as bad as it possibly can be. No one there in the treating center, none of the doctors, none of the nurses, nurses believe that person is going to survive. That is going to be one of the people who dies. Because their prognosis is so bad. He said the amazing thing, Keith, he says, is sometimes those are the people who do survive. And all the nurses and the doctors are walking around talking to each other. There's no other possible explanation for that healing, but this, in fact, is one of those God things. It's a God thing. We know that God could heal Job. And we know that God will do that because we know the rest of the story. But I would imagine at that point, no one believed it was going to happen. I would imagine at that point that Job didn't believe that it was going to happen. His wife obviously didn't believe it was going to happen. So ultimately, if our friend Job is, is cured, what is the only conclusion that anyone is going to be able to come to? 
that in fact is a God thing. And we know the rest of the story. Well, when they come to him, they, they, they come close, but at the same time, they maintain some distance between them and Job. But he's sitting out in the open, under the, he's described as being sitting under the sky. He's not in a room, he's not in a building, he's not in any closure at all. He's out sitting completely exposed to the elements. The sun beating down on him, the, the, the rain, the heat, the cold. And there's a possibility now he's been there for months. Enduring not only his physical pains caused by the disease that's fallen upon him, but suffering at the expense of, or at exposure to the elements as well. It's possible to conclude that Job was the most stressed person at that point that has ever lived on the planet. Grieving, hurting, troubled, confused. Let me ask you something. How many friends do you have that would sit with you in silence for seven days without saying a word? Would you be that friend to other people? Job is sitting on the ground. Now, I love Uganda. But I'm sure that uh, everyone that's been there, and now we're talking about Lori and Dick and Barb, and Walter's not here, but he's been there too. There's some things I always remember, and one of the, them is this that, was, that troubled me, that bothered me, and that is just trying to find a comfortable place to sit. It's like everything you sit on feels like it's made out of rock. You know, very often you're sitting on a hardwood, this, that, or the other, and, uh, and, and whatever, and it was so nice to come back to the civilized world just to have a soft cushion every now and then. We take things for, like that for granted. You know, very simple things like that that we don't think are any big deal, but when they're taken away from us, they become a very big deal. Can you imagine sitting on the hard ground for an hour? Days, weeks, even months. That right there in itself would be sheer torture. Take away everything else. But what's good enough for their friend Job is good enough for his three friends. They plop down on the ground and they sit. And they sit in absolute silence for seven whole days and nights. Can you imagine anyone enduring something like that just for you? To be there for you 
I would imagine these friends probably have a lot they want to say, but they don't say anything. As uh, they do begin to speak, which they will, what we're going to find is that they've concluded that somehow Job has brought all of this upon himself. They're not saying that to him yet. But for those seven days, they don't say anything. And they were all real talkers, which is going to become apparent once they do start speaking. None of them was afraid of talking. They all seemed to really like talking. As a matter of fact, they could be some of those people who like to hear themselves talk. Very educated and knowledgeable men. It takes great wisdom to understand when to speak and when not to speak. And it's, a, it's an art that I think some people just never, ever learn. Know anybody like that that just constantly says the wrong thing at the wrong time? <laughs> Sometimes they're the wrong people and, you know, that sort of thing. When I first started going to make hospital visits, I never had anyone take me by the hand and say, Keith, I need to go to the hospital. Why don't you go with me and I can kind of show you how what I do. I was given someone's name on a piece of paper in the hospital they were in and go visit them. And for a long time, I thought it was my job to make these people feel better by the things I said to them. So, you know, I was rehearsing what I was going to say when I went the first time and, uh, and that sort of thing. And but one of the things I began to realize early on is that especially when people are on the verge of dying, you don't really have to say anything. And chances are, if you do say something, it's going to come out real stupid. Uh, very often, because you don't know what to say, it's not the right thing to say, and you wish you could take it back once it's come out of your mouth. But very often, people, especially those that are close to death, the only thing that gives them comfort is just knowing you're close by. That's all it takes. Are you a friend that can do that? Do you have friends that will do that for you? Sometimes the near presence, or pres the mere presence of a loved one is all the comfort someone needs. But they need for you to be there. We can come up with all kinds of reasons why we Maybe we need to go, but we can also come up with all kinds of reasons why 
we shouldn't go or can't go. And very often those reasons are things like, I couldn't just, I can't bear to be, to watch them go through what they're going through. In other words, it's, it's all about me. And so we don't go. And then we regret it for the rest of our life. So I think one of the things that we need to glean from this that we can take and apply to ourselves is that we be goers. That we be those friends who are willing sometimes to just go and sit and not say and not discuss. Just to be there. For dear brothers and sisters and friends. And the real challenge is to be there for strangers. Sometimes people that we don't know, that don't have anyone that can come and sit and be there. As Christians, we need to be very different than other people. We need to be willing, and not only willing, but desiring to do that, which most other people would not even think about doing. We are ambassadors for Christ in anything we do, in everything that we say, in everywhere that we go. You do not know what is going to happen this week. We think we know, we think we have a pretty good idea, but let me tell you, your whole world could be turned upside down or the world of someone else in this room could be turned upside down and look nothing like it does today, just a few days from now. In the next hour, in the next minute. There will be people that will die today all alone. There will be people to die today that will die alone, never have hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God calls us, everyone, to go. wherever it takes us. We are his. We are his emissaries. Being a Christian does not mean for anyone sitting and doing nothing. I'm hoping, if nothing else, this COVID thing has really brought about a season, of pr- a season of prayer amongst believers like nothing else ever has. That people are spending a lot of that extra spare time that they've got in their prayer closets, in prayer. And if we're not doing that, then shame on us. We're wasting away really good time that God has given us to do things that are very simple for us to do. And heaven forbid that we're wasting all that time. 
Are we being there for other people in their time of need? Where we are going to be serving the Lord's Supper this morning, and of all things, this should be a measure of a number of different things, but certainly one of those is God's willingness to come and sit with us and be with us in our time of need.